Welcome to the North Main Podcast, a production of North Main Street Church of God in Butler, Pennsylvania. This podcast brings you North Main's messages every week. We strive to know God intimately, grow in Christ continually, and go for Him daily. I invite you to listen in today as we explore the Bible and learn about its unchanging truths for living life God's way. Let's listen in to this week's message. Each week we've been challenging you to do a kindness in our community or wherever you go. If you, if you were to go on a vacation this week, we would hope that maybe you would do a kindness even across state lines. We have message, message boards or kindness boards, I should say, in the entryways and across from the coffee shop. Many of you have taken cards, which are suggestions of kindnesses that you can do each week. Some of them are mystery ones. There you'll see that you're not allowed to open the envelope and look before you take it. If you touch it, it's yours, all right? And so those are usually a little bit more involved than just a typical kindness. Um, some of you have actually uh, responded to us, and I want you to watch a video of one of those kindnesses that was done just within the past week. I picked a mystery envelope that encouraged me to send a deployed service member a care package. When I logged onto the website to get started, the first thing I read overwhelmed me with emotion. There was an explanation about how many of the men and women who are deployed don't have any family support back home. It made me so sad to think that these young men and women who are willingly risking their lives for our freedom don't have any support from their family or friends. The fact that I could be a part of being able to encourage at least one of them was a huge blessing. Thank you for doing this. You could do something like that or something very different from that. So I want to challenge you before you leave today, go ahead and take a kindness off the kindness board and dedicate to doing that kindness this week. We can't mandate that. We're not going to try to mandate that. But let us know how it went. We won't post your name everywhere. If you want to send us a video or a vlog of what you did and you know, that's great. If you just want to send us a written statement, that's awesome. We'd love to highlight how different kindnesses are impacting the community. Um, as we get into our message today, we've been doing a series entitled Kindness 24-7. And um, this Kindness 24-7 idea is that we are called as believers in Christ to be servants. We are called to be servants not just of those we love, but those who we don't even know. We are called to be neighbors to those we don't know, just as others are our neighbors as well. And so we've been looking at the miracles of Jesus. The miracles of Jesus, meaning the kindness and the compassion of God by touching and healing and bringing hope to the lives of others. This is a whole idea behind this kindness series. The late pastor... And author Timothy Keller writes in his book, Making Sense of God, imagine you have two people of the same age, the same socioeconomic status, the same education level, and even the same temperament, same personality type. You hire both of them, and you say to each of them, you are part of an assembly line, and I want you to put part A into slot B and then hand what you have assembled to the next person in the line. And I want you to do this over and over for eight hours a day, five days a week. 
You put them in identical rooms with identical lighting, temperature, and ventilation. Everything is exactly the same. You give them the very same number of breaks in a day. It's extremely boring work. Their conditions are the same in every way except for one difference. You tell the first person that at the end of the year, you will pay him or her $30,000. And you tell the second person that at the end of the year, you will pay him or her $30 million. After a couple weeks, the first person will be willing, or the first person will be saying, oh, this is so tedious. Isn't it driving you insane? Aren't you thinking about quitting? And the second person will say, no, this is perfectly acceptable. In fact, I whistle while I work. What's going on? You have two human beings who are experiencing identical circumstances in radically different ways. What makes the difference? You're saying money. (laughs) It is their expectation of the future. This illustration is not intended to say that we all need a lot of money. It does, however, show that what we believe about our future completely controls how we experience our present. We are irreducibly hope-based creatures. Pastor and author Rick Warren is quoted as having contrasted the difference between optimism and hope. He says, optimism is psychological, hope is theological. Optimism focuses on what you think you can do, hope trusts in what God can do. As we continue the series today, we come to a particular passage, and what I find interesting in this is, we'll get there in a second, but Matthew chapter 5, Jesus has come across from Lake from the Lake of Galilee, from a place called uh, the Gerizim Territory, or the Decapolis. It is a place that is more of a pagan territory. It's on the eastern side of the Sea of Galilee. On the western side is Capernaum and Nazareth and all of that over in there. That is the thoroughly Jewish area. So Jesus goes across the lake. He heals a man called the Gerizim Demoniac, Uh, who has multiple demons in him. He is so uh, demon-possessed that chains will not even hold him. And the demons inside of this guy, when Jesus asks what their name is, they say their name is Legion, meaning there's a bunch of us in here. And Jesus is getting ready to cast them out, but the demons beg, oh, please don't cast us out into outer darkness, basically. Cast us into that herd of pigs. And so he did. A herd of pigs runs over a cliff and dies a horrible death in the water. All right? Uh, This isn't, uh, I'm not advocating for the death of pigs, even though I love bacon. Okay? (laughs) But that's what happened. So now Jesus is driven out of town by the people who have witnessed this. They're like, "Uh, we don't know who you are. You're kind of creeping us out. Could you leave? And so Jesus acquiesced to their request, and he goes back to Capernaum across the lake. When he arrives, 
the crowds are pressing in. They, they hear about his case. He's coming back. They see a boat coming. They recognize it as being uh, Jesus and the disciples. And they know, based on miracles that have occurred already, Jesus is the miracle worker, the healer. And so they're all coming because they want a piece of him. So the crowds are pressing in. They get off the boat. But there's a man by the name of Jairus who is an officer at the local synagogue who is trying to make his way through the crowd. Somehow he presses his way through this thick crowd to come face to face with Jesus. And he begs Jesus, can you come to my house, my daughter, my young daughter? She's extremely sick. And Jesus says, yeah, I'll go. I'll read it in a minute. But here's the interesting thing. As often happens in our lives as well, we're on a mission to do something and we get interrupted. As he's on his way to Jairus' house, there's a story we're going to talk about next week of a woman who touches just the garment that Jesus is wearing and he notices that he's been touched because something significant happened. The faithful touch of a woman in desperate need, believing in faith that Jesus could heal her, just the touch of his robe brings healing to her physical body. He stops, looks around, who touched me? Now consider the crowd is thick around them. And the disciples are like, dude, well, they didn't call him dude, but they said, yo, um, there's a lot of peoples here. And uh, how are we supposed to know who touched you? Everybody's been touching you. Do you know what happens after he addresses the situation with the woman? Messengers arrive from Jairus' home. It's too late. Twelve-year-old daughter has died. I can't relate to the death of a child. I don't ever want to be able to relate to the death of a child. I can't imagine how hopeless that would be. The closest my wife and I ever got to that, and she's sitting right here, was when our two-year-old daughter ran away from home. <laughs> we lived in Fennelton on about nine acres of land. Tom and Sue Mikas are here. We were, they were letting us rent a home from him, them out there. It was beautiful. And uh, she, Raylan, we just, they just turned their heads for a minute, and she was gone. And I get a frantic call from home, not knowing where Raylan is. She's two years old. I, I'm flying home. I'm breaking the sound barrier on 422, headed from the church. And... Um, we're searching, looking in every ditch, down in the creek bed, over the embankment, around the edge of the road. And you know, as, as time ticks on, the chances of finding somebody who has gone absent is worse and worse. We have three cop cars in our driveway helping us to watch and look and trying to find out. About 45 minutes to an hour later, we see Raylan sorry, my daughter, <laughs> through the back glass of the neighbor's door 
and you have to go through the woods to get to the neighbor's house. We knew that that neighbor, our kids had played with their kids. Well, just so happened the door was unlocked, somebody was home that day, and Raylan had found her way into the house and into the kids' playroom and had changed her clothes and was playing with the dollies and all that while we were frantically searching. Yeah, that was scary. I'm just telling you, I've never felt more scared and more hopeless in all my life. I can't imagine what Jarius must have felt receiving the news. So let's pick up his story, Matthew chapter 5, verse 21. Jesus got into the boat again and went back to the other side of the lake where a large crowd had gathered around him at the shore. The leader of the local synagogue, whose name was Jarius, arrived. And when he saw Jesus, he fell at his feet, pleading fervently with him. My little daughter is dying, he said. Please come and lay your hands on her. Heal her so she can live. This is when the interruption happens. And then after the interruption with the lady, we pick up in verse 35. While he was still speaking with her, the woman caught with, or the woman with the issue of bleeding Messengers arrived from the home of Jairus, the leader of the synagogue, and they told him, your, your daughter's dead. There's no use in troubling the teacher now. But Jesus overheard them and said to Jairus, don't be afraid. Just have faith. Just have faith. Then Jesus stopped the crowd and wouldn't let anyone go with him except Peter, James, and John, the brother of James. When they came to the home of the synagogue leader, Jesus saw much commotion and weeping and wailing. He went inside and asked, why all this commotion and weeping? The child isn't dead, she's only asleep. <laughs> and then the weeping and wailing turned to laughing. The crowd laughed at him, but he made them all leave, and he took the girl's father and mother and the three disciples into the room where the girl was lying. Holding her hand, he said to her, Talitha Kaum, which means little girl, get up. And the little girl, who was 12 years old, immediately stood up and walked around they were overwhelmed and totally amazed. And Jesus gave them strict orders not to tell anyone what had happened. And then he told them to give her something to eat. <laughs> we're going to break this apart a little bit today and try to understand really what's going on here. I think you get the gist of the message through the basic face, uh, face reading of this, but uh, let's, let's dig a little deeper. The, the key point is this, true acts of kindness can resurrect life and hope. So what's the first thing we see? Jarius, what is his role? He's a synagogue leader. What does a synagogue leader do? Well, the synagogue leader is one of a handful of leaders at a local synagogue. A synagogue is a place of learning for Jewish for the Jewish religion and tradition. Children did not go to a regular school to do reading, writing, and arithmetic, so to speak, in that day. Jewish children went to the local synagogue from about ages four or five up to about age 12. And they would learn, as I've mentioned to you before, to memorize and to write 
by memorizing and writing the first five books of the Bible. Do you know how long that is? Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. And our children think they have it hard. I'm just kidding. They do. Okay. Um, Imagine memorizing that. You're learning mathematics in there because there's numbers and sequences and numbers in there. They had to learn all of that stuff. But they were also learning, and they were very educated by the time they hit age 12. Okay? The local synagogue was that place of learning to where the kids would grow in knowledge and understanding, not only of reading, writing, and some arithmetic, but more specifically in the ways of God's laws and commands. They remembered Deuteronomy 6, where Moses commanded the people of God to teach these things to your children. Write them on your doorposts. Write them on your forehead and on your arm. Teach them to each successive generation so that they do not forget the Lord your God. The local synagogue ruler would coordinate the learning experience. On the Sabbath days, rarely was there a rabbi that would be in town. Rabbis were not in great supply. And so they had people who would do the weekly readings on the Sabbath. From the seat called the Moses seat, the synagogue would not be set up like our local sanctuary like this, where you're facing the back of another person. Instead, the synagogue had benches and rows wrapped around the rectangular area of the synagogue, and they would be facing each other. At the head of that assembly was a seat that the teacher would sit in after he had read the scroll reading for the day. And then he would expound upon that reading to give it commentary. The synagogue leader would be the one to oversee and make sure all of that was happening. They would make sure the scrolls were where they needed to be, where they were kept, and that everything was ready for each and every day. Now imagine Jairus, the synagogue leader, who knows about Jesus, he knows the Pharisees and other religious leaders are not taking much of a liking to Jesus. They're actually wanting to do something to begin to trip this guy up who they see as a false prophet and a bad teacher, and so what are they going to do? Jarius is more than likely very, very knowledgeable about the disdain of the religious leaders toward Jesus, and yet he's a synagogue leader. Do you think he's maybe in a bit of a quandary? But when life and death are on the line, and you know there's somebody who's healing other people, maybe you've been a witness to it, maybe Jairus, because this is in the same general location where Jesus had been gathering disciples and had been doing miracles already. Maybe Jairus had even witnessed a miracle or witnessed someone who had been given a healing touch that he knew was lame or blind or deaf already. Jesus' reputation preceded him, and Jairus knew, and Jairus obviously heard that Jesus was coming back into town, and so he wanted to be there because his daughter is on her deathbed. He didn't allow pride to overtake him. He was humbled by the fact that his daughter 
needed something desperately to change their situation. And if you are the parent I think you are, you, like me, would do whatever it took to save your kid. No matter if it meant going against religious leaders who didn't like Jesus. Jairus believed Jesus could heal his daughter. And belief is the first step to the process of miracles and wonders. The second thing is Jesus encouraged Jairus' faith amidst devastating news. Bruce Barton writes, literally, this passage where we take this from, reads, Jesus refused to listen to the words they were saying. While he was still, I want to read this passage again. While he was still speaking to her, that woman who he just, who he just healed, messengers arrived to the home of Jairus, the leader of the synagogue. They told him, your daughter is dead. There's no use in troubling the teacher. And this is how it would read literally. But Jesus ignored them. That's what it means. But Jesus overheard them and said to Jairus, that's the New Living Translation, but literally it says Jesus ignored them. It's almost as, as if they weren't even there. He keeps his eyes fixed on Jairus, not on the messengers. And what does he say? What does he say to, say to Jairus? Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. Jairus, look at me. Don't be afraid. Just have faith. How do you have faith in the midst of imminent death? I've never seen anybody raised from the dead. Guessing Jarius hadn't either. I mean, it's not an everyday occurrence. If I'm Jarius, I, I, I'm, uh, I'm probably in shock. I mean, some of the processes of grief are denial, anger, depression, acceptance. When you hear of the death of a loved one, it's, it's not just a sucker punch. It's like you have an out-of-body experience as if this can't. I'm not, my brain's not making sense of what you're saying. Have you ever had that experience before? I'm guessing Jarius is there. He knows his, his daughter is in really bad shape. And I'm guessing while this lady is being healed, he's probably fidgeting and wringing his hands and just thinking, he's not thinking about the woman being healed as most of us wouldn't. We would be thinking, oh, time is of the essence. Oh, Jesus, hurry up. You, just do your thing. And uh, don't, don't, why do you need to find out who she is? Just, she's healed. She's fine. Let's, let's go. And then messengers arrive and, they tell you the news you've dreaded to hear. And you probably just, you could be wailing and weeping. I mean, we all grieve differently. Or you might have just been like, uh, what? Hey, I'm sorry. What? I don't, it's not computing. I don't, I don't understand what you're talking about. Jesus ignores the messengers. Jarius, Jarius, look at me. Don't be afraid. It's okay. Just have faith. You ever had a situation in life that seemed hopeless, desperate, that there was no way out of it? 
And it was by no fault of your own that you were there. It was just circumstances and situations that just threw you for a loop. And, and you're reeling from the pain and the desperation of it. There is a God who wants you to stop for a moment and say, and, and, and say to you, take a few deep breaths, okay? I want, you, I want you to focus on me. Take a few deep breaths. I know the shock of this moment is, is, is rocking you to the core, but just take a few deep breaths and don't be afraid for a minute, okay? Just, just stay with me. Have faith. Do you trust me? I've got this. Just have faith. I'm going to bring something good out of this. Just don't focus on them. Don't focus on that. Don't focus over here. Focus on me. Don't be afraid. Have faith. Okay? Have faith. Jarius. Does death... Does death mean that God is too late? That's a tough question to ponder. Does death mean that God is too late? Barton goes on to explain, death did not make Jesus too late. Instead, it meant that Jesus would do an even mightier miracle. Jairus must have looked in despair at Jesus, but Jesus made no indication of changing his plans. It wasn't as if he's like, well, I guess that was too late. <laughs> Sorry about your luck there, Jer. You know? Jesus had no indication of, of changing his plans. Jesus was still going to Jairus' house. And he wasn't going to do some kind of funeral dirge. He was going to bring life back from death. Don't be afraid, just believe. Jairus had come to Jesus in faith and Jesus, that Jesus could heal his daughter. Jesus told Jairus, keep on believing with the same faith even in the face of death. Jairus must have wondered, I don't know how he's going to bring something out of this now. What, what's he going to do? I mean, what is there left to do? I mean, I, I just have to follow him. I don't know what's going to happen, but I can't stay here. I have to follow him wherever he's leading, and if he's leading me to a home of death, then he's obviously got something in store, so what else do I have to lose? I've lost everything already. So when Jesus gets there, there's a commotion going on. Now, religious leaders of synagogues and other Pharisees and those who had means and wealth were able to afford what, they're, what are called professional mourners. It was seemed shameful if you didn't have somebody to weep for you when you died. And so all the more that people could weep and mourn for a loved one or for you when you died, the, the better. And so if you could afford it, you would hire those people who would dress in all dark cover their faces, put ash on their head, and weep and mourn for your loved one. You would pay them to do that. Check it out. Look at the ancient Jewish traditions. It's 
what was going on. This gives you a little bit more indication as to why they might go from crying to laughter in a split second. What's all the fuss about? She's just asleep. <laughs> Do you hear this guy? She's asleep. She just died, man. That's how I view it. I can, I don't know, you guys might be able to make yourselves cry. I can't, I try to squeeze a tear out. It looks worse if I do it this way, doesn't it? The only time I cry is when I'm laughing too hard and other times that I won't tell you about. But it's hard for me to make myself cry. I wouldn't be able to be a good professional, I wouldn't be a professional mourner. But I could laugh. And if I heard something ridiculous, at least to my ears, I'd probably be like, <laughs> okay, whatever. That's kind of what's happening. They're scoffing and mocking Jesus. Oh, she's asleep, is she? <laughs> no. Um, what does he tell those people, except for mom and dad, Peter, James, and John? What does he tell the people? Get out. Why does he tell them to get out? Because they don't believe. And where there is a lack of belief, there is a lack of miracles. I believe that where there is a lack of belief, there is always a lack of miracles. Why do I believe that? Because the scripture states it. I've said this to you over and over again. Jesus was in his hometown of Nazareth. He sits in the, remember the synagogue? The synagogue in Nazareth was set out the same way all synagogues were. And Jesus was a guest teacher there for the day. And he unrolls the scroll. The reading for the day is from Isaiah 61. And he proclaims about himself to be the deliverer and the Messiah that the scroll proclaims. He says, all of this has been done through me. Well, they don't take very kindly to that in his hometown. Some of them are saying, isn't this the carpenter's son? Well, we've, seen, we've seen him since he was a little kid. We watched him grow up. And now he's saying that, wait a minute, he's saying that Isaiah was talking about him? <laughs> the same mockery, jeers. Do you know what it says that Jesus was unable to do in Nazareth? Miracles. Due to their lack of unbelief. Do you catch that? Now, a similar situation. Jairus' daughter, his 12-year-old daughter, is dead. The professional mourners and other people are there weeping on her behalf. And Jesus says, what's all the fuss about? She's asleep. And they start mocking and jeering at him just like they did in his hometown. And he says, enough. Get out. And I'm sure he didn't say it. Oh, could you guys please leave? Where there is a lack of belief, there is a lack of the presence of God. Because God will not be where he is not believed he is. He is a gentleman. 
He doesn't force his way into situations or lives. He opens his arms to receive us and wants us to open our arms to receive him. He's not going to force himself on any one of us. But Jairus, the head of that house, came to Jesus. And as the head of that house, he gave Jesus authority to be there. And because Jesus was given authority to be in a place where Jairus and his daughter and the rest of the family was, Jesus had the authority to kick everybody else out who didn't believe. And so once the room was emptied, Once the room was empty, Jesus could then do something miraculous. Because of a room full of faith, after everybody left, Jesus entered an atmosphere of death in order to bring life. Do you notice something significant? What does the first thing after the room is emptied Everybody's gone except mom and dad, the daughter lying on her deathbed, Peter, James, and John. What's the first thing Jesus does? He holds her hand. What happened last week to the man with the issue of leprosy that Jesus healed? Remember, he falls down at Jesus' feet. If you are willing, you can heal me and make me clean. And Jesus touches him and then says, I am willing. Be healed. And now, though no disease is present, just death at this point, once the room is emptied of all of the doubters, Jesus grabs the little girl's hand. Oh, I love this image. Jesus is breaking down barriers over and over and over again. He's Lord over all disease. He is Lord over the deaf. He is Lord over the blind and the lame. And now he is Lord over death. Oh, death, where is your sting? Where is your victory? Because when the Lord is present, there is nothing but life. I, Jesus says, am the way, the truth, and the life. He is the source of all creation from which all life springs. He is the one who knits us together in our mother's womb. We are truly fearfully and wonderfully made. And now, kneeling by the bedside of a 12-year-old girl, he proves yet again the significance of who he is in the face of a seeming impossible situation. He is king over all and master over everything. Nothing throws him for a loop, nothing catches him off guard, and nothing is able to stop him from accomplishing the Father's will. But we read this as a 2,000-year-old document, and we say, well, that's all good and well, but I've never seen anybody raised from the dead, Brandon. Maybe you have. You could talk to me afterwards. But I... 
Most of us have never seen anybody raised from the dead. We've wanted people to raise from the dead. A loved one that's passed, maybe too soon. A tragic situation or circumstance where we're just, this can't be happening. We've wanted to see it happen, but we've never seen it happen. The question then ensues, does you can bring somebody back with CPR or life-saving techniques, um, you know, doing CPR for a couple hours at the max, but then they usually stop because it's, it's too, too late. There are stories that go beyond that. You could check it out for yourself. I don't have any written down today, but look it up. Check it out. Have you ever entered a room of death? And I'm not saying physical death, but you felt the presence of death. You felt the hopelessness of a situation. Have you ever been into a situation where the wall of depression hits you like a ton of bricks? Have you ever stepped into a situation or an environment like that? What happens when you do? If you're a believer in Christ, you are a light bearer. We are called to be salt and light. What do we do in moments like that? Well, I tell you what often happens is we allow doubt to take us over. And we become like the rest of the room, desperate and hopeless. But as light bearers and as conduits of light and life to other people because we have the light of life in us through Christ Jesus, wherever we go should be a place where we illuminate the truth of God, where we bring the peace that passes understanding, where we redirect the situation to who God is, not with curt answers like, oh, heaven needed another angel. That kind of junk needs to be tossed out. That does more damage than good. But redirecting, to the great, redirecting people to the greatest hope giver the world has ever known and in whom there is only true and real everlasting hope is what we should be about. And maybe, just maybe, through the power of the Holy Spirit, God would bring you to a place where you could bring death from life. As our worship team comes forward today to close this out, let me read this to you. The English poet Alexander Pope, listen to what he wrote. Hope springs eternal in, in the human breast. Man, is, man never is, but always to be blessed. But the question is, where does man turn when all hope dries up? The director of the medical clinic uh, of a medical clinic told of a terminally ill young man who came in for his unusual uh, treatment. A new doctor was on duty that day, and he said to him somewhat curtly and casually, "You know, don't you, that you won't live past this year." As the young man left, he stopped by the director's desk and he began to weep. That man took my hope away. Where was the other doctor that I've been used to meeting? This guy just told me I'm not going to live for the, maybe by the end of the year I'll be gone. He took my hope away. 
And the director said to him, well, I guess he did. Maybe it's time to find a new one. Commenting on this incident, Lewis Smedes wrote, is there a hope when hope is taken away? Is there a hope when the situation is truly hopeless? That question leads us to Christian hope, for in the Bible, hope is no longer a passion for the possible. It becomes a passion for the promise. Hope is not hope if it can be taken away. Do you understand that? Hope is truly not hope if it can be taken away. Hope only resides in the one who believes in a God who is more than able and capable of doing what is best in our lives and for our eternities. God's acts of kindness throughout the Bible are countless, and God's promises throughout the Bible are complete, and they are everlasting. If Christ can raise a 12-year-old girl from the dead, he is more than able to deal with our difficult situations. For God, who can raise a child from the dead, also raise a crucified Christ from the dead, he can take away the sting of sin and death. I guess the question I leave with you or the statement is, if you've lost all hope today, it's time to find a new one because the hope you've had obviously wasn't anchored in something permanent and solid. The only hope worth having is found in Christ. I don't know your situations. I don't know if you've lost a job, if you're messed up in addiction. I, I don't know if your family has, has alienated you and you're estranged. I don't know if you're going through a bad divorce, a broken friendship. I, I don't know if you've lost a loved one to some sickness or disease. I don't know your circumstance, but God does. And it's only in him that there is truly hope and hope everlasting, hope worth living for. And that's the hope you need. If your hope is in your job or in the person sitting next to you, that is a hope you can have. But here's the thing. People let us down. Circumstances let us down. Our jobs don't always fulfill us. Substances that we take into ourselves that may feel good for a moment, food, alcohol, drugs, or any other thing, they may feel good and satisfy a need for a split second, but then it's gone. You want something permanent. It's only in Christ Jesus. I don't know why we continue to search other places. I do this too. My eyes get off Christ and on other things, and I get misdirected, and then my hopes come dashing down. It's because I've lost my focus on the true hope giver and started putting hope in everything else. And then when everything else starts to crumble and fall, I'm like, God, where are you? And he's like, I've been here the whole time. You're just not looking at me. Keep your eyes fixed on me. Don't be afraid. Just have faith, Jarius. Father, I don't know why we struggle uh, with, with doubt. We just do. Um, I, I guess it's because we live in a world and a culture of unbelief. Or maybe it's because we don't have, have eyes to see or ears to hear. 
But God, we're focused on everything else but you in our culture. Even our churches tend to focus on everything else but you. Budgets, numbers, everything else you could think of. Oh, Lord, forgive us. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness, oh God. Forgive us for hoping in anything less than you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thanks for joining us this week. Check back next week as we dig deeper and go further in our understanding of God's Word. Make sure to visit us on our website, www.northmaincog.org, where you can learn more about us. If you found value in today's message, we'd appreciate a rating on iTunes, or if you'd simply tell a friend about the show, that would be helpful too. Donating to the ongoing ministry of North Main is easy. Just go to our website and click on the Give tab at the top of the screen. Thanks for listening. We look forward to you joining us again next week.